We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. One of the first cassette tapes I ever owned was a Rick Astley album. And when I was nine, I vividly remember watching the music video for Never Gonna Give You Up. It featured a young Lancashire man, barely out of his teenage years, working a double denim look as he danced in front of a chain link fence. Although Astley is quoted as saying he never thought he was cool, I certainly did. And I wasn't the only one either. He gained worldwide fame in the 1980s, a product of the record hit factory Stock, Aiken and Waterman, and Never Gonna Give You Up went on to be number one in 25 countries, winning a Brit Award. The hits kept coming. Astley became famous and rich seemingly overnight. But then, at the age of 27, he retired from music to focus on spending time with his partner and raising their young daughter. After returning to the studio six years later, it was a wholly unexpected viral internet phenomenon known as Rickrolling, which kickstarted the next evolution of his career. It brought his music to a whole new generation of fans. Greta Thunberg's karaoke version of Never Gonna Give You Up at the Stockholm Climate Live conference in 2021 is my go-to video for when I need a hit of pure serotonin. By 2008, Astley was being voted best act ever at the MTV Music Awards. His album, 50, released to mark his half century, shot straight to number one in the UK charts. By 2021, Never Gonna Give You Up had hit one billion videos on YouTube. At 56, Astley has the kind of success and youth kudos a man half his age would dream of. Eight consecutive UK top 10 hits, more than 40 million album sales and 3 million TikTok followers. With all this, you might think Astley has little to worry about, But as he says, I'm a professional northerner. So if there's a grey cloud, I will find it. Rick Astley, I'm so excited to be sitting opposite you. Welcome to How to Fail. Listen, I'm I'm really nice to finally meet you because obviously we have 
friends in common, family, your family in common. Yeah, so it's kind of nice to finally meet you too. We should just end there. Let's end there. This isn't going to get any better than that, so let's just end it there. I'm afraid we can't um, end there because there's so many questions I okay. want to ask you. Right. And you mentioned the family connection. So my mm. beloved cousin Andrea is mm. a very old friend of yours. Indeed she is, yeah, yeah. And your godfather to her daughter. Yeah, and indeed. this is how this has come about. Yeah, yeah. But I, I want to start on that idea of you being a professional northerner and mm. finding a grey cloud where there could be a nice silver lining to yeah. look at. <clears throat> is that still the case? Would you describe yourself as a pessimist? I think I'm a realist. I'm not a pessimist. And, that, and I think my wife Lena is from Denmark. Mark and Danish people, definitely Lena, are very positive, very, very outgoing, very optimistic to a point of annoyance. <laughs> That's not quite true. She will say to me sometimes, you know, stop being so negative. And I'll say, stop being so bloody positive. Mm. And I think that is partly why we do counteract and balance each other a little bit. Yeah. I don't think I am that negative. I mean, I don't think you can dream of having a career in music and be a negative person, you know? And I also think, you know, we're sat in my little studio today. To come in here and actually have the balls to think anyone wants to ever listen to any of this nonsense that comes out of this room, you've got to be pretty positive, you know? I just think that my upbringing, where I'm from, I haven't lived there for years, you know, but where I'm from, you had to be realistic. Realistic things punch you in the face quite often. I think, you know, I'm from a very working class, very normal sort of town. Normal in the sense of a lot of the things that people did for a job were just very everyday sort of jobs. It was a factory, coal mining, that kind of place. You know, when I grew up as a small child, it's different now, obviously. Everyone works in IT, I think. Joking, 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 <laughs> Newton, I'm joking. Don't write in. But I think, you know, things changed a lot. But, but growing up, and especially growing up when I did and going into, just, we've gone quite heavy all of us straight into this. But as a kid, I can remember when the coal miner strikes were on, I remember seeing police in, in riot gear in our little town, on the edge of our town, because there was a really big mine there, you know. There's a couple, actually, but there was a really big, fairly modern one. And obviously, the, the guys who were protesting it, the miners protesting it being closed and everything. And I don't think I ever saw the fighting going on and everything, but you, you would drive past there, and there'd be 100 police in riot gear. And you think, that's pretty brutal, I think. Yeah. And I think it's a reminder of... I still think there is a bit of a north-south divide, to be honest. I've just been up in Stockport, funnily enough, Stockport and Manchester. I've got some friends up there. Obviously, it's just a bit different. It is, and I, and I don't know exactly, but you can say that you know about Italy as well, the north and the south, and you can probably say about a lot of countries. You know, so. definitely say it about Ireland. We were chatting before. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think so. Even though I haven't lived there for thirty odd years, I can't really call myself a northerner anymore with any truth to it, in the sense that I've lived down here for thirty odd years. But there is something still in my bones. There's something still in me that my outlook on life is looked at through northern eyes. And mm. I don't know exactly what that even means, but anybody listening to this who understands that understands it in the way that I do. And I think you just can't escape that. You know, it's just the way it is. So We'll get more into detail on your childhood a bit sure. later because it pertains to one of your failures. Yeah. But I'm very interested by what you say there about your upbringing. I assume that you didn't have any pop stars that you were related to. It must have seemed like a very far it away It seemed dream. a million miles away. One of the things that was kind of interesting was that Manchester wasn't far away. Liverpool wasn't far away. I'm kind of like equal distance from both of them in the little town that I'm from. But we'd go into Manchester shopping. When I was a teenager, we'd go to, obviously, looking for clothes and stuff, but record stores and all the musical instrument stores, you know, the ones in Manchester actually had things you wanted to own. Do you know what I mean? You would go in there and you could spend hours in there. And I think Manchester was a bit of a centre. And 
It wasn't London for us, it was Manchester. That was too big a dream, London. And I remember seeing the bass player from the Smiths with his girlfriend walking down a main street in Manchester. And I was with my friends that I was in a band with. And we were all just like, it's real. Wow. It's actually real. He's a human being. We've seen him in the flesh, not on a stage, not under coloured lights, not playing a bass. We've seen him walking down a street. I think if I'd seen Morrissey, I probably would have freaked me out even more, if I'm honest. But I just think it sort of became really real. And also because they were a band that were quite different. And they, they were just different even in their own, the era that they broke through, they were quite different. But they've just been different forever, if you know what I mean. And anybody ever got into the Smiths, they're just a different kettle of fish altogether from everything. And I think that made it even more so. In other words, it wasn't... If I'd seen a member of Spandau Ballet, I would have imagined that they'd be very sort of flouncy, mm. clothes-wise, and this, that, and the other. He was just real. Mm. And therefore, it, I don't know, it just made us think, it's possible. That's so interesting because it also Flouncy. Connects... Where does flouncy come from? I know from? what you mean, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah, southern yeah, word. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of connects to you now, having found your way to this entirely new generation mm. of fans... Mm through TikTok, through Rick Rowling, yeah. through the success, renewed success of Never Gonna Give You Up, it's almost like you're real for them in a totally different way. They don't see you on the street, but they see you on TikTok. Yeah, well, obviously things like TikTok have changed, you know, the landscape completely because I think it's way before TikTok, actually. I just think people have an appetite to see the backstage side of everything. Fly on the wall TV has been around for, what, 30 years, 25 years. And I think people, they love seeing people under the lights still and the show and the whole thing, but they kind of also want to see them getting ready. They want to see them come off the stage, an argument between the drummer and the bass player over something. They kind of love that, I think. It's what makes us human. Yeah, maybe, but I, I mean, there is a part of me that liked it the way it was before, yeah. where, where it was kind of like, well, that's the dream. And like I say, seeing a famous bass player from a band we all kind of loved was really strange. But also because he was so real, that, I don't know, that made it amazing on the one end, but it's so, it's lifting the curtain a bit as well, to some degree, you know? What's behind the curtain? And I don't know, I kind of, I guess I'm, I'm 56, so I'm old enough to remember that pop stars were just pop stars. Yeah. They were idolised. You never saw them getting ready for a gig. You just saw the gig, you know? And yeah. um, maybe that changed at some point. You can't put the cat back in the bag, can you, really? It's, it's done. It's over. That's it. That's what people want now, you know? They want a bit of everything, so... Well, let's talk about the journey of Never Gonna Give You Up. Mm. So, from me watching it as a nine-year-old in my sitting room, that mm. video, which I re-watched in preparation for this interview, and I have to say, it bears up to scrutiny because the fashions have all come back. So, you're actually looking very trendy again. Well, there you go. There you go. I'm just going to take that. I'm just going to take that. It's weird for me to look at it, obviously, because... Partly because, yes, I was there on the day. I'm in it. But also because it's become this kind of crazy thing on the internet, that song and the video and everything. It's taken on a life of its own that's got nothing to do with the actual original mm. track and the original video. And it's just become something else, which I'm grateful for. And it's amazing. And it's definitely helped with every aspect of my life, I think. I guess the only thing that's a bit weird for me is when I look at that guy, I kind of struggle sometimes to see him in the mirror in the morning, if you know what I mean. Like anybody would, I was 21. So it's very hard to, I don't know what the Stones and McCartney and whoever else think. I mean, cause that's, they've got another 15, 20 years on that even, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to see yourself that age and try and work out who that guy is, you know? And how much of that person is still there. So I find it really weird. I'm over it by the way, but I do find it a bit embarrassing looking at those videos because yeah. 
just because I don't think anybody wants to look back at what they would look like when they were 21 and it's just weird. It's odd. It did strike me looking at it how, how young you were. Mm. And I was recalling this quote that apparently Whitney Houston said about you. Oh, really? To, yes. Oh. <laughs> to Pete Waterman. Wow. Where she was sitting next to Pete Waterman at a concert and you came out and she said, oh, he's so sweet, I want to mother him. And Pete was like, I want to a gold mine, apparently. But there is that okay. sense of... <clears throat> It's a sort of very moving video to watch in a way because you do seem so young and quite insecure. Yeah, I'm very insecure yeah. in that video and I'm also very naive. I, I look about 11. I'm, I'm 21 in that video and I look about 11 years old. And the thing, again, I've talked about this recently. We live in a world where everybody films everything. Yeah. Everything. You know, you're in a restaurant, you're on the beach, you're whatever, someone pulls the phone out and he's filming something. So it's totally and utterly normal for someone to be filming anything that you do. I've even had people try to film me and when I'm in the men's room because they forget. They forget. Oh, will you just do a video for this thing? I'm like, can we do this outside? With your tackle out. Well, you know, people just forget. They just, I don't know what it is. They just don't think. And I'm like, whoa, give it a minute. You know, I've had that a couple of times. So people are just used to that. But when I was 21 somebody having a video camera of any description, you know, like an old video camera that was the size of a, you know, truck, it wasn't that normal. So to just be in front of cameras and thinking, so we're filming this, was pretty weird. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, a video back then, I'm sure the same today on certain ones, there's 25 people looking at you, of which you don't know any of them, you've never met any of them. And I turned up to that video, all the clothes are mine, I just brought them in a bag, so the double denim, the stripy shirt, the blazer, the raincoat, just clothes I had. Nobody kind of said, oh, well, we better find out what Rick's going to look like. And also, I wasn't choreographed. It was just pure fear, you know. Oh, really? Just stand in front of a camera and dance in front of a chain link fence. So it was so unorganized. And so it was just ridiculous, to be honest. But I actually think that is the charm of it. Exactly. That it looks like an 11-year-old kid going, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'll give it a shot. And actually, yeah. that's why people like Greta Thunberg, I imagine, relate to it, because there's another kid who's grown up in the public eye who finds yeah. himself in these weird situations. Yeah. Now, I had to Google Rick Rowling and look up the definition several times, because now I'm showing my age, because I was like, I couldn't understand it. But basically, Rick Rowling is when someone sends out a hyperlink to something yeah. and claims it's about something else. So mm. Greta Thunberg famously did it and yeah. said it was about her plan to save the planet exactly, yeah. and there was a link and you clicked on it and it's actually a video of yeah. you dancing to never going to give you up for sure have i got that right okay. yeah pretty okay. much yeah i think you can do anything you want with it now but that's the that's how that's the original that you send a link to somebody with a video and they think they're going to see something whatever that could be and boom you know it either goes straight into never going to give you up or you get five or ten seconds of the video that you think you're going to see and yeah. then that kicks in okay. and that is the joke of the rickroll um it's so why it is, is it weird. Video uh, I'm not exactly sure, and we've delved into it a little bit and tried to find out and look at it. And there's different people say different things. There was a thing called duck roll, and a guy sort of just basically changed it into a rick roll, if you know what I mean. So I think it was videos of ducks or animation of duck. I think it was. I don't really know. And also, to be honest, I have to a great degree kept some distance from it. Yeah. Because I think that's the right thing to do. It's like if somebody does something on the internet and it becomes a thing, and obviously that's on TikTok these days a lot, it's you're allowed to jump on the bandwagon of it, 
and you're allowed to jump on it and do your version and all the rest of it. But when you are the subject of it, I think that's slightly different. Mm. So don't get me wrong, we've done a couple of commercials. And if I'm brutally honest, just because they offered me loads of money. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, be, and, because, and because it sort of prolongs the life of the song. It's a yes. bit kind of, I remember back in the day when we used to go to Japan and you know we got in, into a meeting there and they're saying, look, we, we really want to do a commercial with Rick for a soft drink and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. Why would I do that? And they said, well, lots of other people do it. And I was kind of like, yeah, but who does that? So they sent, it was a VHS, they sent it round to the hotel. And it's just the biggest artist you can possibly imagine. All doing, you know, a whiskey advert, a whatever advert, you know, all these different things. And I kind of went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also explained to me that unless you want to go to Japan every couple of months, this is a fantastic way of getting your songs all over the TV. Mm and maybe even a bit of the video on the TV and most of it. So it was just like, a, I guess, a commercial exchange of, you know, we play your music, they paid you to do it, obviously, as well. So it has been a bit of a weird one, because I've always kind of shied away from that, just because I think, even though I made, you know, pop music, I still think there is a, you just got to be a bit, little bit careful about how far that goes, if you know what I mean, yeah. what you're willing to, you know, trade for somebody using it. But I also sometimes now feel, well, like, like I said before, that cat is out of the bag big time. So there's not a whole lot I can do about that anyway. Yeah. So we, we actually did a video recently for an insurance company in America where we kind of remade the video a little bit, which I thought was absolutely bonkers, to be honest. But it was kind of fun to do it. It was actually a bit surreal to do it. Were you wearing double yeah, denim? Yeah, yeah, they went, they they went honestly, I, I, I asked for the clothes because yeah. I was just so freaked out. I said, can I have these? And they're like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm like, so, <laughs> it was pretty weird. Huh. To be honest, yeah. You said there that you make pop music, but actually you make soul music as well. You have an Thank incredible you. voice. Thank you. And I love your later albums. Thank you. And I think your longevity in this industry, which does celebrate the new and mm. the young, mm. is so impressive. It's an incredibly impressive feat. And I, before I go back and ask you about the early days, I want to ask you whether you're enjoying this second iteration of your career more than the first. Possibly, yeah. I mean, because, but that's also just on a very, very personal level in the sense that, you know, I can do almost anything I want to do in terms of going for coffee and dinner and whatever. And if I get recognised, it's usually in a really nice, charming way. It's not really a pain in the ass, you know what I mean? So, and it was back in the day. It was ridiculous. So my friends and I just gave up going out in the end. So, and that's not great when you're 21, 22. Yeah. You just go, right, I'm just not going to go out there ever. Listen, it's a fair trade, I think, you know, because what, what happened to me was amazing. I wouldn't swap it. But I remember, I, I, I actually do remember going to a club. It was back home, back up north somewhere. And I went out with four friends. And I'd had like a really big hit song, obviously. We might have even been on the second one by then. Just not naively. We just sort of thought it'd be fine. There's five of us. It'll be fine. And it wasn't. And it was just a mess. And in the end, we, you know, they, they had some what we would call bouncers back in the day, who came and looked after us and everything. But we just gave up and just went home, you know. And I just thought that's the end of that then. Mm. And like I say, I don't want that to come like a moan because I would swap that again every single day of the week. I'm ever so grateful what happened to me and the life it's given me. But there is a trade sometimes, whereas today there isn't. I can probably go into almost anywhere. If not singing, definitely whistling never going to give you up. No one really cares. You know what I mean? So it's kind of nice, you know? Do you think 
some people become famous because they're insecure or because they want to fix something and then they discover that actually fame and attention makes them more so. I definitely think most people who, in music, possibly, you know, actors as well and different things, who, yeah, I, I definitely think I was trying to fill a big hole. I do love music, I genuinely do. I spend hours in this room on my own messing around with bits of music, knowing in the back of my mind, I'm probably never gonna play this to anybody other than Lena and a couple of friends, because it's not really something for me, but I'm just really enjoying doing it. Mm. And I will mess about literally for hours with the sound of a guitar. <laughs> because I think that's just part of who I am and what, and what I like doing. I know I made records that people wouldn't necessarily, back in the day especially, wouldn't associate me being that bothered about the sound of them. They probably thought I was more bothered about my hair than the records. You did but, and do have great hair, oh, to be fair. Come on, come on. Well, this this particular one <laughs> was was made in China. And, okay. Um, <laughs> I no. feel like your hair's got better the older you've Thank got, you. which not Thank many you. men can say. Thank you. Anyway. I'm very lucky in lots of ways, and my hair is definitely one of the ways I'm lucky because I've still got some, so... So can I ask you a bit about the genesis of Never Gonna Give You Up? Sure. Because Pete Waterman claims <laughs> it was something that you said to him. He had a girlfriend, is that right? Yeah, okay. I don't remember this. Yeah. But evidently, I used to, I used to get a lift with Pete. I, I stayed at Pete's flat when I very first came to London. I think partly because he felt he needed to look after me. I was green as grass. I'd been to London once in my life, I think. And I think he felt, well, I can stick him in a hotel around the corner, but... Is that, you know, and also because he had a girlfriend from the town that I'm from. And I think she said to him, look, just make sure you look after this kid, you know. So, yeah. So, um, and listen, I would have been okay, but it was, it was, it turned out to be with one of the most amazing things. Because I was in the car with Pete every morning going to the studio. One morning in the car that he's talking and he puts the phone down because it was one of those big mobile whatever phones, you know, back in the day. Um, great big brick. And I evidently said to him, fingers, Pete, you're never going to give her up. And now I don't, I don't remember that right. And I will say that Pete can tell a good story. Uh, and I think he also wasn't daft in the sense that it was said that I was a T-boy and they heard me singing. Mm. I don't know who came up with that. And I was a T-boy because they signed me. They started getting busy. And just to show me the ropes and just see what was what, I got to live in London, stay at Pete's. And like all the other young girls and guys in the studio, I made the tea, made the coffee, got the sandwiches, cleaned the studios in the morning, reset the desk as you used to have to in those days. Even like, you know, as I got progressed into it a bit, I was allowed to like set the tape machines up in the morning and put the tapes on, which is kind of a terrifying thing to do. Because the day before, they've just written a massive hit song and you're touching physical tape and putting it onto a machine where there's razor blades and everything as well. Because it, it was a great experience and... The other side of that as well, at night they always used to go for a pint in the local pub and I was allowed to go and sit with them on their table because I was one of their artists. Mm -hmm. Even though I was a T-boy, I was an artist as well. Whereas most of the other young kids weren't allowed, they'd buy them a drink, but they weren't allowed to sit at their table because they were going to chat business and you know. And I just sat there, kept my mouth completely shut and just tried to take everything in like a sponge. Because I didn't know what the music business was really at all. Yeah. And these guys were making hit records, you know, so. I know that if I were having this conversation with a woman, I would ask her this question. Yeah. Did you ever feel in an uncomfortable position? Did you ever feel you were being harassed or compromised in some way? Because you it, were so young. By who, sorry? By Anyone. 
I mean, that industry is notorious. Oh no, not, not no, no, not not in that, not in that yeah. sense. No, I was just, I was, you know, for want of a better way, just one of the lads. You know, just one of my friends today, one of my close friends today, who lives in Australia now, and I've done for donkey's years. But he was ahead of me. He was kind of an engineer, really, and became one of their proper engineers. But he sort of took me under his wing a little bit, and he would always show me this, that, and the other, and and I did demos. That's the other thing that I'll never ever forget about my opportunity with Stockhake and Waterman is that their trajectory is just unbelievable and they're so quick and they, you know so they had like two or three studios not long after I'd sort of started there because they just kept adding them uh, so they could work in different rooms and have you know but we were allowed as the kids not just me because I've been signed as an artist they let the tape ops and the juniors and everyone do it they would give them the studio for the night so if you were up for staying up all night you'd be working in a studio that literally the day before was producing a number one record. Mm. And some of the younger engineers and junior engineers and guys who were trying to be an engineer were desperate to do that demo with you. And it was amazing. I mean, it's so different today because everything is so computer-based. So what are you going to break? Pretty much nothing. But if you imagine going into a studio with a desk you're working on, at the time was probably worth three, four, five hundred thousand pounds. That's enough to buy a street where I'm from at the time, you know? Yeah. I don't know, it was just really odd. It was like giving the keys to the castle kind of thing without, just really strange when I think back about it. And I don't know anybody else who would have done that. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So your first failure is your failure to stop drinking. Yeah, I did add good wine did, to that in, in the end. Because, yeah, I did, because the drinking one sounds, that doesn't sound right. I have the ability to refuse alcohol. I definitely do that. Yeah. And I'm not a drinker per se, really. I just love a glass of wine. And my, my other thing about it is that if anyone walks through our door after, I'm going to say, five o'clock, maybe four on a Sunday, I'm opening a bottle of wine. Oh, That's I happening. You, I wish you'd arrange this. <laughs> Later. Yeah. And obviously they don't have to have a glass, and I don't, yeah. but I'm just saying it's just, I just think it's part of, it certainly wasn't when I was growing up. Nobody drank wine from the little town that I'm from. I mean, maybe somebody did, but I never saw it. I don't think I ever saw anybody go in a pub and have a glass of wine. Mm. It just wasn't what you did, you know. I remember, the, I remember like a wine bar opening not too far away from us, and, and we were all just thinking, what? What is it for one? Do you know what I mean? I might be exaggerating that ever so slightly, but it just wasn't a normally a normal thing. And I didn't really get into drinking wine, even like in the early days of when I was traveling a lot with having the hit records and stuff. I just didn't. And at some point, 
something changed. And also we've had a couple of really good friends, some friends who lived across the road. He's the parents of my godson, or yeah, whatever you want to work that out. Peter is a phenomenal person to know if you want to have a glass of wine. He's always collected wine since he was really young. I think an uncle of his introduced him to it. I knew certain wines and certain things. And, and obviously it, it's a little bit about having some spare money so that you, know, you can actually say, sod it, we're going to order a bottle of that when we're at dinner or this, that, and the other. I'm not a wine aficionado by any stretch of the imagination. I know certain things, I've managed to remember certain things and what have you. And I guess I know a little bit about what I like as well. And that's the other thing. But if Lena and I go to somewhere like a really great restaurant, like let's say if they have a wine pairing with the food, we very often do that because I want to try new things and explore mm -hmm. things. But I tend to be a creature of habit as well. I know it's not fashionable anymore, but I, Chardonnay is my thing. And yeah. I'm just smiling because it intrigues me that you've chosen this as a failure. Because to me, it sounds absolutely lovely. No, You're completely it, <clears throat> on top of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I'm not. It's not a booze thing really at all. But it's a failure in the sense that Last night is a great example. So I was out with some friends up in Manchester the other night and it had been someone's birthday and this was the night he was going to celebrate. So we had quite a few drinks, quite a few drinks. I got home the next day and I thought, I am definitely not drinking. There's no way that, there's no way that, you know. And then I spoke to Lena on the way home and she was making like proper Sunday late lunch kind of thing. I thought, you don't have to have a glass of wine. It's fine, you can just enjoy, you know. Anyway, cut a long story short. I got home and had a glass of wine. And what I'm saying is, is yeah. that at some point you have to say, certain days you have to say, that is not happening. Mm -hmm. But one of my closest friends came around and that's the end of it. Okay. Somebody walks through that door, we're having a glass of wine. But why do you have this guilt attached to it? Because it doesn't sound like you take it to an extreme. Is no. It just a is it just a health thing or is it, as I suspect, actually tied into an internal voice that you might have going, who do you think you are? I don't know about the who do you think you are. No, I think I'm over the who do you think you are. Believe me, I treat myself if I want to. <laughs> That's not a, no, it's more, I think it's partly to do with just willpower. Just, I've got strong willpower in certain things and wine, it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't. And even when we play live and stuff, I'd say the one thing that I've done, which is great, certain gigs we do, obviously we go on tour, we're all on buses, it's a tour, that's what we do. But sometimes you're just doing a gig on a Saturday evening in wherever, because it might I might play at a race course or what have you. And very often, because I'm slightly control freak type of person, I drive myself. Mm -hmm. I could have a driver, but I don't. I drive myself. So I can't drink. So even if we've come off stage, someone's cracked open a really nice whatever, I'm like, well, I can't. I'm driving home in 10 minutes, so I don't. Yeah. And I think that's been really, I mean, healthy in lots of ways. I just think it's that thing of being able to say no. I just can't do it. So, you, but you can do it in other areas. Oh, I can do it. Like I'm not like I said. I don't have to drink every day of my life. It's not yeah. like that at all. I don't crave a drink in the morning. There's no way that I'm even getting close to like being a, a drinker. Yeah. It's just that thing of like some people do it with chocolate, or yes. some people do it well. It's okay. like it's if, that kind of thing. And also, I feel rude if I don't open a bottle of wine. I feel kind of like well, that's the accepted norm. It's like why are we not going to have a chat and a glass of wine? Why do you think you're a control freak? I'm a bit of a control freak. I don't like flying. And I think that's partly control. I'm exactly the same. Right, okay. I don't really like being driven. I can handle it, especially in towns and stuff. But if someone's going to drive me on the motorway at some distance and some speed, I'd much rather be doing it myself. Mm -hmm. I don't mind the tour buses for some reason. I guess because you're just all in it together and you're on a big tour bus. But I don't really like being driven, if I'm honest. And I have certain control things like that. I, I think it stems from 
maybe things in childhood, but I also think it got massively exaggerated when I was in control of nothing for like four years of my life. You know, stockache and Well, not just that. that it's not. It's not those guys. It's just having hit yeah. records, and you know, I literally went everywhere lots of times in a very short space of time. Really, four or five years. I never stopped traveling, and some days we'd fly twice a day, and that just gets a bit old pretty quick. And I think it's just that sense of seeing a fuzzy fax with all the stuff you have to do on it for the next week, and just thinking that's just not human. Mm. And I remember sometimes. Again, it sounds like a moan. It's just an observation. It's just, you do interviews all day sometimes, or I certainly did back in the day. And you think, right, I'm going to pretend I want to go to the bathroom because I just need to go and sit somewhere on my own for 10 minutes. And even at a young age, I just did it. I just did what I was asked to do. But there were moments where I would kind of think, this can't be good for you, you know. Is that part of the reason why you took that hiatus? I know you also had a young Yeah, daughter. it wasn't going to be that for me. It was, I'd, I was quitting full stop. I wasn't really entertained. Partly because I kind of thought I'd had a good little run at it and usually you don't get another go anyway. Most of the people who've managed to have 30-odd year career, real careers, I mean, there's a handful of them. You two have done it. You can say other bands, rock bands have done it, but not many. Pop stars like real, you know, let's say Kylie, for instance, she's done it, but I don't know what that woman's made of, I'll tell you. Mm. I do not. I've got so much respect for her, I can't tell you. Madonna's done it to some degree. Well, not to some degree, she's done it, she's been the biggest pop star in the world, you know, but I don't know how people do it and keep hold of themselves, really. And like I say, whenever, it's not for me to say this, but whenever I've been around Kylie in the brief moments and times I have, you can still see a human being there. You can feel a real one, and that's pretty amazing. Because most people who do that are so unreal and so kind of, detached almost you know what I mean it's almost a shock sometimes I think when I've met people who are really famous and and this that and the other you know but thankfully I've met a bunch who aren't and you just think oh my god that's amazing you know we were talking before we started recording about new kids on the block because you've just yeah. been on tour could, with new yeah, kids sure. on the block en vogue and salt and pepper yeah. which is just my dream yeah, come to no, life it was great and you said new kids on the block were like that too they all still hang out they together. all were the girls were everybody was we didn't exactly hang out a lot together because it was a tough tour. You know, we did 56 arena shows in America, which was just mad. You know, I can't do that kind of gigging anymore, you know, without without doing it with somebody else. Can't even get close to it. And we went to states that I don't even think I played back in the day when I was having my hits there, you know. So it was an amazing opportunity and a great thing to do. And I did actually have a bit of contact with Donnie before, Donnie Wahlberg, that is. It was kind of like the... I don't know, you call him a spokesperson, but I think he kind of leads them a little bit. And I think the guys acknowledge that in a really nice way as well, you know. So I kind of thought, yeah, he's cool, you know, he's all right. He's like a real person. Like I say, you can, you know, I spoke to him quite a bit. But under the pressure of touring as well, you think, well, I don't know what this is going to be like because it was really their tour and we were guests. That's the way it is. And you kind of think, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of, you know. And one of the amazing things, which I still to this day can't believe, is they went on first. They opened the show to get everybody like, this is happening, boom, straight out the gate. And then they'd go off and they'd get changed and have a little minute's break, whatever. Somebody else would go on, sing a couple of songs. So I'd go on, sing a couple of songs, whatever, whatever the list, the way it ran. But, and then they'd obviously come back again three or four times. And we all kind of came back a couple of times and did songs. But for me, that even shows something about the mentality of rather than going, oh no, no, we're going to let you warm them up and then we will, you know. There was none of that. They just made you feel like, well, we're just doing this together when we're in it. And even backstage, 
they're just totally chilled. There was no, you know, obviously I'm really respectful of people in any scenario, but in that world, I'm, I'm doubly respectful because I know what it feels like if you've just had one of those days where nothing seemed to go right and now you've got to go and sing for 12,000 people. Yeah. It's not easy sometimes, you know, because it, not because of the, the concert and all of that, it's just stuff that can happen in the day, you know, just like you forgot a bag at the hotel and that's the bag with everything in it <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, and they were just really chilled. Everybody was, you know, it wasn't easy to do the gigs because there was a lot of them and there's a lot of traveling and all that, but the actual backstage vibe and everything. And there was like a real camaraderie of people rooting for each other to go up there and do it. And that's really nice to see because it isn't, that world is not always like that, you know? I can imagine. What's the most surreal celebrity encounter you've ever had because oh, of your career? <laughs> I don't know whether I really want to talk about them always because I kind of want to keep them as my little things. Oh, please give us one. Well, obviously, this is a very, 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 very public one, so I have no problem talking about that. I jumped on stage with the Foo Fighters some years ago in Japan, and I've done it a couple of times since because that's about as far end of the spectrum as you can get, really. Me, Foo Fighters. That's, that's, you know, it just so happens I'm a bit of a Foo Fighters freak because I still play drums, and I have a couple of friends, and we have a midlife crisis rock band and we play from Sex Pistols, just anything that was like punky, kind of like part of that movement of music's just changed. Mm -hmm. And we were all kids learning those songs and everything and being influenced by them. And you could play punk music, you could get away with it. And if it was a bit rubbish, that sort of seemed genuine then, if you know what I mean? Because yes. that was, even though there's a lot of punk records that are actually great when you listen to them, but you could get away with it in a pub. Anyway, so we play some Foo Fighters as well, because we play anything from back in the 70s that we've just loved or meant something. And we do it for charity so we can get away with it. So it was pretty weird for me because I'm thinking, well, this is actually the Foo Fighters. This is pretty strange. And also the fact that they were already on stage. It wasn't like we'd met before. It was a huge festival in Japan. They were already up there. I've said this in interviews before. So Dave Grohl came over to me and I thought he was coming to say hello to somebody else. But he kind of made a beeline for me. And I was behind a barrier because obviously we were just at the side of the stage. And he gave me a hug and he's like, you know, and I'm like, what is going on? And I was really jet lagged and I'd had a few beers by this point because we'd done our set like hours before. 20 minutes later, one of the crew came over with a mic and said, Dave wants you out front. And I'm still thinking, why? I'm not thinking like to sing. I'm thinking he's just going to go, look who's here, everybody. Or, or something or, is, you know, well, I don't know. So anyway, and he just whispered, we're going to do your tune, but it might sound a bit like teen spirit. And I'm like, okay. So we just did that that night and it was just mad, you know. And I think, I mean, listen, they are known for being a ferocious, incredible live band. Of course they are. And I think, I think anybody who's ever seen them live, you get it. But you want to try being on stage with them. That is something else. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. I knew it had happened, but mm. I didn't know it was that last minute and you were dragged no, up. No, I never, never met any of them. Wow. And it was just really surreal. And I've met a couple of people as well. I'm not even going to say who they are if that's okay. Because it's, you know, who we're talking about the pillars of music. People who are just like, if there's a book, they wrote the first two pages kind of thing. And they've been really gracious and nice and said hello to me. I haven't had to wait in line to say hello to them. They've made the effort in a room and gone, I'm going to go and say hello to that lad. And I, I just, that blows me away sometimes. I'll ask you who it is after. <laughs> Don't you worry. So your second failure is that you failed to be close to your parents. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm the youngest of four kids, but there would have been five because they had a son. So there's Jane, who's the eldest, then John. And in between 
John and Jane, they had a son called David who died of meningitis. So before I was born and before my next elder brother, Mike, was born. But obviously that leaves literally a ghost in the house. How awful. And I didn't really understand that because, again, it's really difficult, I think, when you're talking about going back all those years, because we're talking 50-odd years. My mum and dad had one book with photographs in it, and there might have been one that David was in, I think. Because not a lot of people... Maybe, maybe wealthy people did. Maybe people who were really into taking pictures did. But most people didn't. They didn't have, like, endless photographs of, you know? Mm. And obviously, as well, I, don't, I can't imagine my mum or my dad wanted to be reminded of that. But nobody ever really spoke about it. And I knew it, but as a really small kid, and I have thought about this since, even as a tiny kid, you realise we don't talk about that, do we? But nobody really explained why and nobody, you know... Anyway, so that's the... First thing. How old was he when he died? He was two, I think. Oh, that's yeah, a tragedy. Possibly three, two and a bit. But the other thing is that my mum and dad had two more children, Mike, my brother, and myself, and then got divorced. So they divorced when I was about four and never really spoke. They're both dead now. They both passed away in the last few years. And they never spoke to each other. My dad would put the receiver of the phone down next to the phone because he'd answered the phone and wouldn't even say who it was. But we knew it was my mum, because we were brought up by my dad. We lived in his house, not my mum's. And I saw my mum almost every day, I think, in the beginning, and for years. And I used to spend my weekends with her. But I just think they were both broken. I just think they were... When I look back, I think they were both completely broken by it and by each other. Mm. And I never really got past that, I don't think. I'm not going to blame them, because I can't, I can't possibly put any blame on them because of what I've just told you. But... They were just incapable of being the parents they wanted to be. And I wasn't capable afterwards of fixing that. I'm so sorry. Mm, thank you. Was it quite unusual in those days to be raised by the father? It was, yeah, it was. But I think my mum, I think truth be told, she probably just had a massive breakdown. Mm. But again, nobody talked about it. It yeah. wasn't up for conversation. And as a kid, you just brush it under the carpet and you just make the best of it and you do whatever, you know. But no, it wasn't normal for parents to be divorced. Yeah. I think I was one of two kids in our school that had divorced parents. My dad had some issues. Boy, did he have issues. And he was an extremely angry, depressed person. But he was also unbelievably joyful, mm. which, so probably manic depressive or whatever the term is for that today. But that made it very, very difficult growing up in that house because he would literally come through the door with a bag of sweets or what have you, and say, let's do this or what have you. Or we'd all watch like a favorite TV show together. But then we would also encounter that he could go out and come back not long after and be in the foulest mood you can possibly imagine. And break stuff. He hit me twice. Once I didn't deserve it. And my brother, my next older brother, Mike, and I left home that day. <laughs> yeah. And the other time I did deserve it. So I can't really blame him for that. How um, old were you when you uh, left home? We left home, I was probably... Probably about 17, I think. And we went to go and live at my grand's house, which is where my mum lived. Okay. And there was kind of room for us there, and we shared a room together and stuff. And Mike's three years older than me. I mean, what is the making of a person? I don't know. But I think, to some degree, turmoil, hardships, this, that, and the other, they're the things that actually... And failures are the things that actually make you. And so, in a way, I wouldn't swap any of my life at all. I wouldn't change any of it because I'm unbelievably grateful for where I am and where I've been. But I do think I would have liked to have been able to 
make that connection with my mum and dad better. I think, I, I don't mind saying this now because they're both dead, but my mum was able to connect with other people way better than she could with her kids. And it's totally understandable. So she wasn't really close with any of us really. And anybody who's from my little town of Newtley Willows who gets to hear this might say, what is he talking about? And say, yes, but you weren't one of her kids. Yeah. And I wish I could have changed that and fixed that, but I couldn't, and none of us could, you know. When you say it's perfectly understandable, do you think it's all related to the loss of data? Yeah, I do, yeah, yeah, I do, I do. I mean, obviously things perhaps, you know, in her childhood as well and different things, all kinds of things. And maybe, maybe that's a convenient way to put that in a box is to say, well, that's the way it was because of that. So my mum might have had issues before that, after that. But again, we're talking about a time when nobody would have gone to talk to anybody about these issues. You would have just buried them in a dark hole and forgot about it, you know. I think because I've been so lucky in my life and I've done therapy over various things and I've also managed to have the time to sit around and think. Most people don't get that time. Most people are up in the morning before they know what they're doing. They're halfway through their day. They're knackered when they get home and they try and make the best of it at the weekend. <laughs> that um, Maybe that's not quite true, but I, th I, I kind of see that as what most people's lives is. It's, it's like, grab the moments when you can, because we've got to work our asses off just to keep our heads above water. And I've been unbelievably lucky that at the age of 27, I kind of quit and had a lot of time on my hands. One, to pay for therapy, have the time to actually go, and the luxury of being able to think about it afterwards. You know, it's not just an hour or the 50 minutes. It's like I could actually decompress afterwards and think about it and just sit there drinking a coffee thinking what do I really think about that most people don't get that time you know I think that's an exceptional insight mm. the privilege of time it is a privilege it absolutely is and when you went on that career break slash yeah. quitting was it partly because you had become a parent and therefore that was triggering in lots of ways for you in terms mm. of working out what kind of parent you were going to be yeah I'd love to say that that was the most of it. And it definitely was a trigger, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Amelia, our daughter, changed a lot of things for me because I was kind of scared of being a parent, I think, because I don't think my parents were equipped to do the best job with us. And I wondered whether I was gonna follow that as well. But I think, you know, I just, when it actually happened and she arrived, I didn't really have any second thoughts about it, really. I just instantly became a dad, you know, which is, I'm sure it's extremely normal, but if it happens to you. I think what it did, it just made me realize how fucking stupid pop music is. Or I should say, I'd like to retract that. The music's great. The music is great. Mm. It's almost life-saving for certain mm. people, me included at times. Uh, it's, it's the business is just ridiculous. Mm. It sort of destroys people at the exact same time of giving them everything, you know? Yeah. And I think that's such a weird, kind of scale if you like left and right whatever it's just it's just crazy it's like it gives you everything and also kind of eats you alive <laughs> you know and I think it takes a very very special kind of person to come through that unscathed mm -hmm. kind of thing and I think what it did to me was it made me just think well it's one or the other because I was beginning to sort of I wouldn't fly anymore which, yeah, you can relate to just not flying. You don't have to be a famous pop star not to like flying. And I did it all the time. And I did it for years without thinking about it. When I very first started, I didn't like it. But I did so much of it immediately. Literally went from, oh, 
we got we went to Belfast. I remember it well. We went to Belfast, and that I was like, oh, so we're flying. Okay, fine. And we did it, and I was like, whatever. We didn't really like it. And then we're going to Berlin. Okay, so we went to Berlin, and literally from those two flights, I never really stopped getting on planes all the time, and I just got used to it, and I just wasn't bothered about it at all. And I was I didn't have a phobia of it before, but I wasn't I hadn't done a lot of it, you know. But towards the end of me and before, you know, that career that I had in that, those early days, I got to the point where I thought, this is the one that I'm actually going to die on. And when you've got a child at home and, and all the, everything you could possibly want in life is just waiting for you, you've just got to stop doing this nonsense to go and do it. Mm. You know what I mean? That was the other thing. If I stop doing that, I've already got enough money, as long as I'm not an idiot, to last me for the rest of my life. Because as you can see, I don't have Ferraris everywhere and this, that and the other. I've got a lovely home and I've got a fantastic life and I've got everything I could possibly want. What money is for me is freedom. That's exactly what it is. It's just freedom. It's not the things it buys you. Although obviously it does buy you because it buys you freedom. It buys you nicer hotel rooms, that's for sure. Nicer um, wine. It, nicer wine. It definitely does. And I won't ever refute that or even, you know, of course it does. Of course it does. It's inescapable what money does, of course it is. But what I'm saying is it doesn't actually, it doesn't motivate me in a way, in a way that I think you sometimes see people motivated by it, you know what I mean? Talking about your fear of flying there mm. and just where you were at yeah. mentally mm. before you took time out, were you ever worried that that anxiety could pitch into depression, did it? And were you particularly worried because you'd seen your dad? Yeah, I was worried about a lot of things like that, yeah. yeah. I am very much like my dad in certain ways, but I've managed to tame that tiger a bit. And my two brothers and my sister, we talk about it a lot, because I bring it up a lot. <laughs> no, we do talk about it, and we do talk about our parents and the way that they were. But you see, one of the kind of strange things, I guess, in a way, is we're all with long-term partners and We've all got kids and we've all kind of, you know, and I think, I'm not saying that it runs in the family that your parents get divorced, so you will at all. I'm not saying that, but I just think, I think we have actually consciously sometimes said what is important, what is, you know. I'm not saying it was a gift that our upbringing was a bit dark at times, but I think it's just made me appreciate that for one, it doesn't have to be. So stop being an arse and being in a mood about things that don't matter. But I am only human, I can't... If I could stop myself getting in a mood and getting depressed immediately, it would never happen. I know it sounds ridiculous, actually, when I've just said that out loud. But what I mean is it's because it happens so fast. Yes. Something triggers it, and I'm in that mood straight away. It's not a gradual sort of, something's upsetting me. It's like, boom, and I'm upset. And I think if I could just give it the 10-second kind of what have you, which sounds like something you read on the back of a, a dodgy self-help book, but I could, I could stop it every time. It just happens. And I think it's because it's it's like it's from your childhood, like I say. I think it's very much rooted in that. And it's something I learned. Just as an example, and I don't want this to get too heavy because I'm so, so grateful for my life, like I say. I haven't had a hard life in any respect, I don't think. But I have got triggers that make me think about stuff in terms of parenting. And, and one of the triggers, bizarrely, is my dad used to have, he had a little garden center. And at one point he had a pickup truck he had a little business before that, and, and he had the pickup truck for that, really. And it was a Volkswagen pickup truck. So it's the sound, if anybody knows this sound, of an old Volkswagen Beetle. It's a really distinct sound. And we lived in a small little town, and we could hear that truck coming. And when we heard the sound of that truck, we turned the music off, and we got in a state of readiness 
for what mood he was going to come home. And listen, people have had it way worse than that. But I'm saying the trigger is still there. The trigger for things is still there for me to, and I think that's why the temper I've got, which is in, under control most of the time, I would like to think it is, but I know it's there. I know it's that thing of it's just instant. It's just, and I don't like it about myself at all. I think a lot of anger obviously is triggered by fear. And my fear goes back to that fear of my dad coming home and not knowing what mood he was in. Yeah. If he was in a foul mood, every single day it would have been a hell of a lot easier because that's consistency yeah he just wasn't first of all thank you so much for sharing that because i know so many people yeah. will relate to it mm. secondly you are such a lovely person and you are constantly you. at pains to ensure that your gratitude is expressed and i yeah, want I to am, yeah. reassure you that mm. you've done that beautifully mm. you don't come thank across you. as a moner or someone who doesn't know okay. it's privilege at Good. all but thirdly i wanted to ask you whether that inconsistency of parental mood, mm. do you think that might have made you into a performer in some way? Because you were always shape-shifting. Yeah, I think there's a, there, there is an element of performance in it, yeah, because you've got a performance on for your parents when they come on because, or, or you know, my dad in my case. Yeah, probably. But I think, because we talked about it, or you, you brought it up before, but I didn't really get into it. I think the thing of going on stage, I wanted to fill this black hole that I felt was in not just in my life, but probably in my whole family's. Oh, Rick. <laughs> Sorry. Don't um, be. Yeah, no, but I think, I, think it, it, I, I do think it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting that, especially because of the music I made, I didn't make dark and miserable music. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which is, you associate that very often with people who've had, that's their release for it. There's also a bit of safety on stage. I feel really, really comfortable. Not the two seconds before I get up there. <laughs> I'm quite nervous, obviously, like everyone is, you know, but that's a different kind of nerves and it's an adrenaline thing and it's all kinds of things. But when you're up there, you, I feel quite in control. I feel in control of the audience in a, in a, in a nice way, obviously, but, and, and I'm in control of myself. And I think there is a safety in it. It feels safe. You, you've got like a suit of armor on. And you've given the rest of us such a beautiful gift. So out of this darkness has come such an act of generosity on your part. I can't see it like that. I, I, I just got lucky. Well, I can't. I can I, okay. Like well, that's that's a very nice way to put it. But I just got really lucky, I think. I know I've got some talent. I've got some talent in a few things that sit well within the world that I got into in music, obviously. But I also know that it's not about just that. It's about so many things. And friends that I've had have been in music and stuff. And from a, from a bit of a distance, I can kind of see, well, that's why that didn't happen. It's because very often it's timing, it's luck. All the biggest bands and artists in the world had some luck at some point. Masses of talent, masses of drive, masses of what it takes to get there. I don't think anybody who couldn't really be asked made it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You had to really want to do it and you had to put that effort in. But there's luck and there's timing and there's just moments of when you meet that one person who's going to open that door and realizing that's the moment. And most of the people I've met who it didn't happen to are because they didn't realize that was the door. Hmm. They just didn't open it. God, luck really does have It does, thing. I think it does. A final question on this. What did your parents make of your fame? My dad absolutely loved it. My dad, by the way, was really, because I've painted him as quite a dark character. He was a very dark character, but he also really loved us and he also was unbelievably proud of what happened with me, which is was a tough thing for him to do because he hated pop music. He hated accountants and pop music. And my brother Mike is a chartered <laughs> accountant. 
because he had a little business. So he hated the accountant coming and he hated pop music. And he let my first band, and I was the drummer for God's sake, he let my first band rehearse in the greenhouse at the garden center, which must have been a nightmare for him, but he did it. And like I say, he was a really loving person. He just wasn't able to control when he was that. Mm. And towards the end of it, I didn't speak to my dad in the end for like 20 something years. But there was just nothing that we could do to get over that. And my other brothers and my sister had a very kind of strained relationship with him as well, where they would go years without talking to him. And eventually something would happen where they'd sort of let the guard down or whatever. And, you know, and I just said, you know what? I'm not doing it. Amelia was born. I just said, I'm just not doing it. I think I'm done. And I, I would love to have changed that. And I did make attempts to change it. And then you, then you just have to give up because it's, it's a bit like, I think, when you're dealing with an alcoholic and you think you're doing, you're doing things for them and in truth, you're just enabling them, really. And I think some of that was in my dad, I think, a little bit. So anyway, sorry. What about your mum with fame? My mum was very proud, I think. My mum was an incredible piano player. Again, I find that really sad in lots of ways, but it was what it was. My mum got a job in an office where my mum and dad divorced in a local little company where we, where we lived. And she worked there for years. And, but she could sight read classical music. She could play anything way better than I am as a musician, tons better. But we, none of us ever learned to play the piano with my mum. And we had a piano in the house and she had a piano at her house. And that just speaks volumes to me somewhere. I can play the piano now. She just wasn't really connected to us, I don't think. And, and like I say, I don't want to paint a bad picture because my mum was so generous with people. My mum, like she loved decorating. She would go and decorate people's houses who were a bit older than her. And, and you know, when she was in her 50s and her 60s, she would go and decorate someone's house for them. Because I think she found it easier. And listen, it's so obvious to say these things. She found it easier to be in people's lives who weren't really in her lives. Yes. And obviously, like I say, I think when you've been so broken by something, you know, like losing a child, I think that's probably where that comes from. So I said it was my final question on this video. I lied. Mm. There's one more, <laughs> yes. which is you mentioned that both your parents have passed now. Yeah. And I wonder what that feels like when you're estranged from your parents, when you're mm. not that close. Yeah. I imagine there's an enormous amount of sadness or regret, but I imagine, I imagine there no, might also be peace. No, there wasn't really. There's definitely peace, yeah. And I thought about going to see my dad and just saying, hey, let's, you know, but he'd become so ill towards the end of it anyway, he wouldn't really have known who I was, I don't think, at that point. And I just thought I'd like to remember the good times and remember the, the positive side of, you know, what I remember of him. And again, I've heard podcast interviews where people said, no, I wanted to do it, so I went and met my dad or my mum or whatever. And I did think about it a lot, but it just, for me, just didn't seem to make sense. So I've got my memories of the, that I want to remember of him and that's better to keep it that way, I think. And my mum, I saw my mum right up until she became ill and, and, and passed and what have you. But I just wasn't that close with her. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was, and I say I, I think, I think I can't speak for my brothers and my sister, but it's for them to say. But I don't think it's lack of trying on our part, really. So. I think she just detached herself from the world a little bit, you know? Rick, thank you so much for talking about my that. My pleasure. Before we move on, I just want to say that one of my favourite songs of yours is Keep Singing. Oh, thank you. And that opens with lyrics about your yeah. father. <laughs> and actually, you should all stop listening to this podcast now and just go and listen to that song and then return to this because it's so beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Your final failure is your failure to grow up, in yeah. your words. <laughs> yeah, 
What age are you stuck at? <laughs> uh, well, I'm 56, obviously, in real terms, but I'm also 21 in a lot of other ways mm -hmm. because that's when I became famous. And I can't remember who said this, but a lot of people sort of stick there. Mm. And I don't think in a sad way for me, I really don't. And most of the time, by the way, I don't feel like that. I don't feel that I'm 21 or that I'm stuck in this moment, as Bono once said so eloquently. I feel it's more like lots of people my age and around my age or younger even would say, yeah, but I don't feel, I feel like I'm in my twenties. I feel like I'm in my thirties or whatever. Physically, I don't believe me. Physically, I don't. But I think my energy for things sometimes feels, and I think it's partly because I work with a lot of younger people. I'm around younger people a lot of the time. And it's the energy that music gives me, I think. It's, it's literally like I could jump off the chair and get stuck into something because I've just heard something that's completely floored me again. And luckily that hasn't has ever changed. Mm -hmm. And it can be an old record sometimes as well. But I hear something new and I just think, oh my God. And the emotion of that feeling is, I'm saying 21 because that's when Never Gonna Give You Up came out and that my life just completely changed and for the better in my opinion. And, and the only thing I'm saying about failing to grow up is I've probably done things and made decisions and even done some parenting things that I didn't really do as an adult. I kind of did it as a kid, really. In a good way? Well, both. yeah, both. Okay. Definitely, definitely both. We were very young parents. Yeah. I was 25 when Amelia was born. And that's pretty young. I mean, not, not for certain people, but it, for, you know, I think it was pretty young. And in lots of ways, I really am appreciative of that because I had loads of energy. But the negative of that sometimes is that I was a kid myself. Mm. I was so lucky because I had some money. Oh my God. So you can have an au pair or a nanny or what have you not. And I know lots of people can do that and you know, but in terms of, like we said before, the amount of time that I had and the freedom that I had to just say, I'm gonna do nothing other than just go to whatever and take Amelia with me and just potter and look at the ducks or whatever. And I could do that a lot more than other people. But I kind of think sometimes that I wasn't, I wasn't really old enough mentally to have a child, I don't think. Okay. I think, in a way. And what <clears throat> were you like or are you like as a husband? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the kind of thing about being young at heart is great. And yes. I love that when I see that in people and, and feel that in people. And like I say, I'm surrounded by musicians and people who work in the kind of technical side of, of touring and what have you and all the rest of it and making records and stuff. And you've got to be young at heart to do that. I mean, my God, we're all like Peter Pan, really. It's ridiculous to be doing that sometimes. It's like, grow up, you know. But I certainly think with the band and the crew and everyone that I work with, they've all got that young at heart thing, but they also have a real professionalism about getting the job done. And that's also why I love doing it, I think. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're so grateful that you do it too. And if mm. you'll allow me, I'd love to tell the story <laughs> about Thomas. Yeah. A few months ago, my best friend, Emma, her son, Thomas, who is now 11, yeah. she said to me, do you know what? He's been having a bit of a tough time at school, but the one thing that he really loves is Rick Astley music. I said, what? <laughs> what indeed? Rick Astley is in our Rick Astley. Exactly, yeah. What and indeed? she said he absolutely loves Rick Astley. He goes around singing his songs all day long. And because I am lucky enough that I have a connection to you, <laughs> yeah. I said, oh, well, I'm going to see if I can mm. tell Rick that. And so I got in touch with my cousin who got in touch with you and mm. you were so kind and you sent Thomas a little video. Yeah, yeah, sure. And yeah. Thomas was so thrilled that he sent you a video back yeah. of him singing, mm. Never Gonna Give You Up. Indeed. And you were kind enough to say that he was pitch perfect. He was. 
and you have transformed Thomas's life. He now yeah. he joined a choir. Amazing. He's got singing lessons. He's got a whole new group of friends, Great. all of whom have been brought to him through singing. Great. That, my friend, mm. is the power of Rick Astley. Well, I thank you. I will take that with both hands. I kind of think that, like I say, I think that's some of the amazing stuff with music, and that's why I've been. Yes, I'm lucky because I've made money, and yes, I've been famous, and that's been a treat at times, and all those things. But I think the thing of just being allowed to do something which has been such a massive part of my life in a super positive, super kind of otherworldly kind of way, you know what I mean? Not many people, pretty much everyone loves music, but it doesn't that often get a chance to affect your life in that kind of everyday sort of way where something as easy and simple as doing a video for someone, but can mean something. Exactly. It's like, you know, we all love music, of course we do, but not many of us get the chance to actually send somebody a message that is, it actually influences what they think and what they feel. And there's times I've got certain bands and I'll, I'll follow them and I'll follow their tweets and their streams and this, and I'll follow some of the reactions people have. And as you can witness, I cry at the, at a cat video I'll cry at. But, it's really moving how people yeah. get affected by music. And like I say, I'm not poo-pooing it or doing it down, but I'm sort of saying, when you think about Never Gonna Give You Up and the way it sounds and that video and the whole everything, it's amazing that it's in its own small way and its own what have you. I'm grateful for the fact that it's made people laugh and it's made people giggle and it's made people this. But in that instance, it's actually made someone say, yeah, I kind of like singing that song. And it's, it's brought them out of themselves a little bit. Exactly. That's a massive... It's huge, you know what I mean? And, and, and there's no way when we were making that record, or even when I was having a hit with it, and traveling here, there, and everyone doing all that, I would have thought, this is gonna mean something to someone. And when the amount of people who've, who've come up to me and said, that was our wedding song and stuff, it's just like, oh my God, you know? And at the time, it probably didn't mean that much when I was 21, but now it does, because I'm a real human now, and I've felt things and done things, you know? I don't want to make you cry again. But for me, for me, yeah. that song and your music mm. is this expression of love. Mm. The love that maybe you didn't experience in a consistent way when you were a child. You yeah. are now handing out yeah, maybe. to so many other people. Well, that's a, lovely way to, that's a lovely way to think and look at it. I don't think I can go down that road and do that. I think I'm probably being a bit detached in that sense of... But again, because as much as I feel stuff when I'm on stage, and I have cried on stage a few times, and I've this, that, and the other, it's a lot of things being on a stage. When it's, when it's really going well, that's a lot of emotion in lots of different ways. And I sometimes think it's kind of crazy that the last song we always play pretty much, unless we do ACDC, is never going to give you up. And it sort of encapsulates a lot of things that have happened in my life, and it sort of gave me my life to a great degree. <laughs> and now we're going to sing it. No, yes. I'm kidding. Oh, go, <laughs> Rick Astley, this has been such a joy. Thank you for making my childhood dreams come true. And thank you for giving us such a beautiful, moving and profound conversation. You're thank you. an absolute legend. Thank you so much, Rick Astley. Thank you. I've actually bizarrely enjoyed it in a way, even though I've cried three times, I think. But there you go. <laughs> the yeah. ultimate compliment. There you thank go. you. <laughs>